You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So this past week, I got two interesting messages. One was from a physician who said she really enjoyed the show, but she was concerned that I was anti-hormone therapy, and she proceeded to tell me the benefits that she sees in the women that she treats in her practice. The next day, a woman from our Feisty Menopause membership reached out saying, well, it sounds like everyone is on menopause hormone therapy, and she felt like she needed to figure out her own hormone plan. And it's funny because neither of those things are actually true. I am not at all anti-hormone therapy, nor am I on any hormone therapy, and I never have been. And honestly, that might be why I don't talk about it spontaneously very much, because it's not on my radar, it's not my firsthand lived experience. That said, I know it's extremely important for many women, so I always want to be sure to address it when it's appropriate. I also know there's a ton of confusion about it even among medical practitioners. And that's why I am thrilled to have doctors Avram Blooming and Carol Tavris, authors of Estrogen Matters, on the show this week. Dr. Blooming is a medical oncologist and a former senior investigator for the National Cancer Institute, among many, many professional achievements and accolades. Dr. Tavris is a social psychologist and a writer, and she has won numerous awards for her writings about psychological science, skepticism, and gender equity. Their book, Estrogen Matters, comes up a lot on this show, and I've had countless requests to have them on. I'm going to be honest. I wanted to leave this interview with all the answers. In the end, I didn't. We still all need to weigh our own unique risks and benefits, giving the knowledge we have on hormone therapy. There is no neat blanket answer. I'm sorry, I really wanted one too. But I did leave with a lot of questions cleared up, specifically about the true risks and benefits of hormone replacement therapy or menopause hormone therapy, whichever you wanna call it, different places use different terms, it's the same thing when it comes to nearly every aspect of our health. Importantly, we spend a good deal of time putting the breast cancer fears to rest when it comes to hormone therapy. We have had many guests on this show say clearly and eloquently and directly, estrogen does not cause breast cancer. Estrogen does not cause breast cancer. So why are we still all so afraid? This interview has the answers and spoiler alert, It's because we've been conditioned to be afraid. I want to be abundantly clear that nobody in this interview takes breast cancer or any cancer lightly. Both Dr. Blooming's wife and his daughter are breast cancer survivors. They also both opted to go on hormone therapy for their menopausal symptoms. I certainly know my share of women who have had breast cancer. I had a fibroadenoma myself when I was 30 which frankly scared the hell out of me at the time, even though it was non-cancerous. But breast cancer, specifically the sale of breast cancer branded merchandise is a massive market, huge business. And the way breast cancer itself has been sold to us 
has not been genuine or helpful. It's made us hyper scared, often at the expense of our health and well-being and other aspects of our life. For example, the Women's Health Initiative of 2002, which pretty much put the brakes on hormone therapy worldwide, claimed hormone therapy increased risk of breast cancer, but that finding was not strong or even significant. It was less significant than being left-handed or eating a piece of grapefruit every day or being a Finnish flight attendant, which is to say the association was weak and probably meaningless. We also get into all the types of hormone therapy in this interview. And at one point, I make a somewhat snarky remark about certain types of bioidentical hormones. And I'm not generally a snarky person, but I'm truly frustrated by the ingenuine and often detrimental marketing towards us as menopausal women. Bioidentical is a marketing term. Though you can certainly get great bioidentical hormones that are regulated and safe from your physician, there are many pharmacists and clinics selling compounded bioidentical hormones that are unregulated and unpredictable, and that's not good for any of us. So I just wanted to make that clear. Anyway, I will stop talking because this show ended up being kind of a long one. It's the most requested topic and the most requested authors, so I wanted to give them all the time they needed and they wanted to be thorough. I hope you find it all as enlightening as I did. To join the discussions that are going to inevitably follow following this podcast, come join us on our social media channels, Feisty Menopause on Facebook and Instagram, or come on in to our private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group, or go all in and see us at the Feisty Menopause membership at feistymenopause.com. Truly, enough of me. Let's have a quick word from our sponsors and get on to the show. Women who ride bikes, and I am most certainly one of them, know that finding women's cycling clothing can be an exercise in frustration, right? And that's why I am so psyched that one of my favorite women-owned and operated clothing companies, Velarosa, has come on as a sponsor of Hit Play, Not Pause. Velarosa's kits feature bold, beautiful, colorful prints and patterns. And the collections, which I really love, are designed so you can mix and match the coordinating pieces to get more mileage out of your cycling wardrobe. Best of all, they fit like a dream. The chamois is super comfortable and perfectly placed. The yoga waistband hugs your midsection without digging in anywhere. And the leg bands are like 100% functional and flattering with no squeezy sausage leg effect that is a big nope for me. Whether you like to ride pavement, gravel, dirt, or your local trail system, Velarosa's got you covered beautifully. And now, thanks to their sponsorship, Hit Play, Not Pause listeners can get 15% off their first order at VelarosaCycling.com. Just enter the code HITPLAY, all caps, one word, at checkout. Again, that's VelarosaCycling.com, the code HITPLAY, for 15% off. So go get some sweet Velarosa Cycling clothing today. Like many of you, I try to eat well, train well, take the supplements I need, and track my recovery, sleep, and progress. So imagine my surprise when I found out I had elevated blood sugar, high cortisol, out-of-whack lipids, and was borderline anemic. Yeah, all while I was racing well and feeling actually pretty great. Turns out, all of my training stress was taking a hidden toll. How did I find out? 
Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker is a service that analyzes your blood, DNA, lifestyle, and fitness trackers to provide you a personalized, science-based, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is simpler, cheaper, and more convenient than traditional blood tests, and their blood tests also include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from traditional blood tests like ferritin and vitamin D. My favorite part, they don't just give you data, they provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. And I've taken those actions myself and have been improving those markers and ultimately my health. So for a limited time, my friends at Inside Tracker are offering my listeners 25% off their entire store. So go to insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause to take advantage of that offer. Again, it's insidetracker.com slash feistymenopause. I can tell you it works. Thank you, first of all, for, for coming on. I cannot tell you how many times people have said, have you read Estrogen Matters? Have you read Estrogen Matters? Or a guest on the show will be, well, if you read Estrogen Matters and daily, like we are inundated with people asking and so confused still about hormone therapy on, on, in, on every level, in every walk of life, in, in the professions. So it is still remarkable to me uh, that we went from, you know, HRT increases your life expectancy in the late 90s based on all of this research demonstrating estrogen's effectiveness. And then like literally I was working at Prevention Magazine when it happened, a flick of a switch, mm-hmm. like overnight, you know, the, the WHI study, the Women's Health Initiative and the Million Women Study, which didn't make quite as much noise, but it was still a signal, the same signal. Um, and everything's changed. Like everything changed. And we are, we're still living with it. Like literally before we got on this today to talk, I got a message from a woman who's like suffering, you know, she's a marathon runner and she's all this and she's in pieces with perimenopause now. And she's got a high breast cancer risk. She didn't get in too much, but she's like, so I know I can't take hormones. So I want to start there. I want to get like that elephant right out of this room. Okay. Can we talk first about True breast cancer risk, which I really like how you talk about that in the in the book, because I think it's so, so important. Uh, many people I've talked to are like, women have breast cancer in the brain and heart disease kills them so much more. And, you know, but we see pink everywhere and, you know, we get that message, right? And I don't want to diminish the, the importance of it because any cancer is important. But let's talk first actual risk of breast cancer and then let's get into the hormones. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Carol, feel free to uh, come in at any time. When have uh, I not? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the, the statistic that is wildly, widely promulgated is that one in eight women during uh, their lives will develop breast cancer. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Let's first say that. Uh, about 90% of women, 90% who are diagnosed with breast cancer today will be cured of their breast cancer, which means for the rest of their life, it will never come back, 90%. Still leaves room for great improvement, 
but that shouldn't be the frightening statistic. The one in eight statistic is generated by looking at the entire lifespan of a woman. In fact, every decade that a woman uh, achieves uh, diminishes her risk for breast cancer. So that that's fascinating to me. The, the decade with the highest risk, which increases as a woman gets older, is the decade between 70 and 80. And there it's about one in 22. So if you've lived to 70, you still have a one in 22 chance of getting breast cancer with a 90% chance of being cured. And that has to be factored into anything you do about this particular issue. Why do we hear one in eight so much? Well, one in eight is a way of frightening women. (laughs) <laughs> and, and we can laugh about it, yeah. but if you want to get somebody's attention, scare them. And almost all of the articles that we write in opposition to use fear as a way of generating attention. That's what the Women's Health Initiative did, of course. You know, you asked about what the risk is, the shocking alarming thing about the Women's Health Initiative. And I wanna tell you the day that the press conference and the great shrieking of headlines, you know, hormones cause cause breast cancer. I mean, not even increase the risk moderate, cause breast cancer. And Avram called me and said, Carol, <laughs> what? what? You know, What's happening? Avram, Avram was already running around the room saying, this is absolutely appalling. And by the way, when those press headlines came out, uh, JAMA had not actually published the article yet, isn't that right of? The doctors had to actually wait for the publication. How did, the when does that ever happen? How did it that does happen? Not. The whole thing was a disgraceful violation of scientific procedure from the moment they issued this result, which as you know from our book, 37 of the 40 principal investigators of the Women's Health Initiative had not even read the article that was going to press in JAMA. Not even, and when they finally had a chance to read it, they said, wait, wait, there are many things wrong here. No, too late, it's been printed, it's going to press. So there was some rush to publication and some rush to end the study prematurely because of this alarm that hormones cause breast cancer. So we look at the statistics. Now I, as a social psychologist, have known this phenomenon for a very long time. When you really, really believe that something is the case, you will massage the numbers, you will turn them upside down, you will dance them on the wall to get the finding that you want it to be. In this case, it wasn't there. It was not, as we say in science, statistically significant, a convention to be sure, that basically says, look, is this finding strong enough for us to worry about? Is it trivial? How strong is this finding? And the answer was, the breast cancer findings were not statistically significant and they were medically trivial. That's the most astonishing finding that doctors and medical journalists and reporters did not look carefully at this scary, scary, frightening. Guilty as charged. I mean, we had prevention. I mean, we just got like, this came blaring at us and, you know, there was a level of uh, trust, I guess, you know, the, and, and, and not like 
certainly not questioning the way it should have been questioned. And I have to ask, is it because it was such an expensive study? The why, we, we hear they, they, all the they, time. They, that's, yeah. I mean, that's what, the question. Why did they do why? this? Why did they do this? Well, we don't know. I mean, if I'm, yeah. I'm not an investigative journalist, but the why, um, as a woman who has studied gender and sex differences, for maybe a hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> You're not that old. <laughs> I can tell you that no, a, a study that finds no finding, no difference, does not get published. Good mm. news, everybody. Men and women do not differ. You know, overall in their levels of compassion, kindness, cuteness, and intelligence. <laughs> no. Does that get published? Does that make headlines? No. But if we can squeak out a tiny finding that men are more something than women, that makes the news. So findings of no fun. So we spend $1 billion on the Women's Health Initiative to report, guess what? Just as we've known for 40 years, estrogen therapy is beneficial for women. Really? We've spent a billion dollars to tell us what we already knew. So I think that was one factor. Uh, I do think another is that the principal investigator, Jacques Rousseau, a cardiologist, had stated his bias at the outset. It's time to stop the HRT bandwagon. How the NIH put somebody who felt that strongly in charge of the whole project? I can't say why. Oh boy. Okay. Um, so let's 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 then tackle the next elephant because uh, there's many. What is estrogen's relationship to breast cancer risk? Well, the first answer to that is we don't know exactly what breast cancer is or why it starts. And I've been a medical oncologist for half a century and uh, breast cancer has been one of my major interests. And when I say that, it's not just me, that's everybody. And so you look for clues because we want to spare people uh, any kind of malignant disease happening. Uh, and women get breast cancer a hundred times more frequently than men do. And clearly women have estrogen. Uh, interestingly, men have estrogen. They have almost as much estrogen as women. But the big difference that we understand is women have estrogen and they have breast cancer a hundred times more frequently than men. So it must be the estrogen. And there's something very satisfying about that. Uh, and to show you how satisfying it is, Carol met a woman in a breast cancer clinic who was bemoaning the fact that she took estrogen and developed breast cancer. And Carol, and you can already see Carol's effect, <laughs> said, good news, you didn't cause your breast cancer. And the woman said to Carol, Carol? She was angry. Well, she was angry, but she also knew why she was. She said, don't you get it? I want to believe that estrogen caused my breast cancer because now I can do something to avoid a recurrence by right. not taking estrogen. Right. She wanted to feel, it was more important to her to feel in control of the breast cancer, mm -hmm. uh, even if that meant blaming herself for having brought it on herself. And I will say to her credit, she looked at me with a smile. She said, well, you know, so many of the women in this waiting room had all been on hormones prior to getting their breast cancer. And then she paused and said, I bet they all had a cup of coffee this morning too. 
you know. So, mm-hmm. you know, and so we look at we look at the evidence to try to get as many clues as we can. And one of the things one of the things you read in the literature is well, estrogen causes breast cancer, but women who get pregnant before the age of 20, and we don't recommend that, reduce their lifetime risk of breast cancer by 75%. Well, wait a minute. If lifetime exposure to estrogen increases the risk for breast cancer, then getting pregnant, which overwhelms the body with estrogen and progesterone, should increase the risk of breast cancer, not decrease it. But it decreases the risk of breast cancer. The Women's Health Initiative, which is going to come up again and again in this study, found that not only does estrogen not increase the risk of breast cancer, estrogen alone, after 17 years of follow-up, decreases the risk of breast cancer by between 25 and 30%. Well, that doesn't make sense, so we put it aside and we don't think about it. Before we had tamoxifen, estrogen, was what we used to use to treat breast cancer. And breast cancer shrinks or disappears when high doses of estrogen are administered. Well, that doesn't make sense either. So we put that aside. Uh, The overwhelming data do not support that estrogen increases the risk of breast cancer. Having said that, it's not an M&M. And we don't recommend that everybody go out and take estrogen. Mm-hmm. But in the late 1990s, Nananda Cole, an epidemiologist then at Tufts University, reported that looking at all the data available, if every woman in the United States started estrogen around the time of perimenopause, they would increase their longevity by about three and a half years. Wow. This is is quite a wow, because, you know, when you think about how many epidemiological studies about, you know, this factor or that factor or this drug or that drug, and they say, you know, it increases longevity. And then you look at it and it's by three months, by six months. And here's something that's such a powerful effect. And I think it, as we show in the book, it increases longevity because it reduces the risks of the big killers for women heart disease, um, and by the way, you know, hip fracture and so forth. I mean, that was a real revelation to me. You know, you think, oh, well, hip fracture, can't people, can and we can replace hips and we can do all these bone surgeries and blah, blah. No, the risk of death after, isn't it, uh, after hip fracture is very high in the year after the surgeries, which I think women simply don't know, don't realize. So we have a kind of array of misplaced fears. We're not paying enough attention to the things we should be afraid of and too much attention to the things we needn't be that afraid of. So then you mentioned the Women's Health Initiative and the findings on estrogen alone. Shove those aside, let's blame progestin, right? So let's talk about progesterone and progestin. How, where does that fall into this picture? Well, What we found is after the use of estrogen was widely accepted and you started the program by talking about that and many women were taking estrogen, we found by following these women that it did increase the risk of uterine cancer, estrogen alone. And so in the early to mid seventies, 
because of the concern about uterine cancer, the frequency of estrogen prescriptions dropped precipitously. And then we found that if progesterone, another female hormone, is administered together with estrogen to women who still have their uterus, that increased risk disappeared completely. And so for women with a uterus, hormone replacement therapy or menopausal hormone therapy, whichever name you like to use, uh, is involves both estrogen and progesterone. For women without a uterus, in almost all the guidelines uh, produced by respected organizations, estrogen alone constitutes hormone replacement therapy. And the question of, well, does progesterone increase the risk for breast cancer? Well, that would be very strange. It would be very strange because studies done in the 70s and 80s found that progesterone was as effective in treating breast cancer and in preventing breast cancer as was tamoxifen. In fact, it had a little edge, but progesterone increased the risk of nausea and caused fluid retention, and that's why tamoxifen won out. But progesterone works against breast cancer. Why then would it increase the risk of developing breast cancer and we have to go back to the Women's Health Initiative, where estrogen alone, as we mentioned, doesn't increase the risk of breast cancer. But as Carol pointed out, it's always better to come up with a negative result if you want widespread publication. They found that the combination of estrogen and progesterone did increase the risk of breast cancer. Well, wait a minute, that increased risk was very small and as Carol said, was not statistically significant. Now, maybe it meant something, but if it wasn't statistically significant, it shouldn't get widespread press until there are follow-up studies. And the follow-up studies done by the Women's Health Initiative, that reported increased risk disappeared so that not only was it not statistically significant, it didn't even hold up except it was still promulgated because it's such a powerful message. That increased risk has now been studied extensively because of how important it is. And the increased risk is not due, even in that initial paper, was not due to an, a rise in the risk when progesterone was added to estrogen. In fact, when the group getting estrogen and progesterone was compared with the group getting estrogen alone, the risk of breast cancer was the same as, was the same. The women who were randomized to the control group compared to the women getting estrogen and progesterone had a lower risk of breast cancer than expected. The control group was lower. And so when you compared the estrogen progesterone uh, women with the women randomized to control, it looked like the estrogen progesterone women had an increased risk, but they didn't. They had the same risk as the women getting estrogen alone. It was only the control group to which the estrogen progesterone group was compared 
that had a lower risk that made it look like there was even a small increased risk when the two hormones were given together. Why did the and control that, group have a lower risk? I'm so glad you asked. I'm oh, so glad you asked. It was perfect. <laughs> did we set this up? Because before a reasonable number of those women were admitted to this randomized control group, many of them had been taking estrogen. And when you eliminate those women from the control group, the difference in risk disappears. Wow. Wow. That's, that's actually you know, a wow. It's really and a wow. Is, it's really a wow. And it's, it's, it's a wow that fills me with such dismay of what it would take for an average woman, you know, who is going to, as you said, this is the NIH, this is JAMA, who is going to read these numbers so closely as they need to be read, you know, to see what's causing what here. But that, that finding is truly a wow. I will tell you from my standpoint, as a person who uh, I never took HRT myself. I didn't go through menopause with any symptoms one way or another. I have no vested interest in this. I had a kind of vague feminist attitude that, you know, big pharma's at it again and who should be taking hormones and it's not good for you, blah, blah. It was, by the way, easy for me to be dismissive of HRT because I was not suffering from symptoms of menopause. Okay, so I'm sitting there listening to Avram do a talk about risks of different things and breast cancer, all from published articles in the medical literature. And here we have the Women's Health Initiative 1.34, you know, it's not trivial, it's, it's trivial, not significant. And then his chart listed the factors that had a higher risk of breast cancer. One extra serving of French fries in your childhood per week, being handed, being a Finnish flight attendant, being an Icelandic flight attendant, using electric blankets, but only for six months of the year and only if you're African-American. I mean, the, the lists of factors with stronger risk factors, all of which were still trivial, medically trivial, but all of them stronger than the Women's Health Initiative claims. None of them had a stop the presses finding, stop, don't eat French fries. If, you know, don't let your eight year old have an extra serving of French fries. Really? You know, there was no attention to these findings. So it was, you know, I'm sitting in the audience looking at Avram's table of risks, which is in our book and which just ought to make everybody say, okay, I get it. You know, <laughs> it's just not that risky. So I have a couple. Uh, okay. So I do think this message is finally, thanks to your book and, and these kind of, you know, you, you're pushing this message out there because it needs to be out there. I think it's getting through to some people that th that this whole thing has been overplayed and but but what who is invested in this fear that persists like that's what i can't understand because like in 2017 an analysis came out right of the of the women's health initiative and it it said i read it that women who used hormone therapy for 5 to 7 years did not have an increased risk for all cause cardiovascular or cancer mortality during 18 year follow up for women in their 50s there was a trend towards reduced risk so but then like i see this piece in the washington post the next not that long after where joanne manson still says that women who are suffering with symptoms should not be denied therapy unless they are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease, breast cancer, and other estrogen-sensitive cancers. What yeah. is happening? 
Like what, what is going on? Oh, this one's easy. Want it, okay. <laughs> Go oh, on. The title of Carol's former book, the book she published and wrote with Elliot Aronson before the book she wrote with me is called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. <laughs> Take it away, Carol. <laughs> well, I was going to go somewhere else, but still. Well, I said to Avram, the story of estrogen could have been a chapter in that book. Because basically, it's a book that explains why it is that once we become attached to a belief, it is very hard to let go of that belief. And the greater the consequences of holding that belief. If it's a trivial belief, you know, what's the latest research on brushing your teeth or something? Well, no big deal. But if you have spent time, money, effort, intellectual attachment to an idea, the prestige for an idea and so forth, it becomes harder and harder for you over time to say, gee, I guess I was wrong. I guess we were wrong with the Women's Health Institute. Imagine what it would take for anyone affiliated with the Women's Health Initiative at the beginning, faced with, frankly, the extraordinary evidence of their statistical manipulations that they went into to create these scary findings, who among them will have the guts and intellectual um, integrity to say, you know what, we were wrong. Well, they're not going to, it doesn't work that way. It, scientists of all people should, the whole point of science is that we have to put our ideas to the empirical test and be willing to say, well, I thought that, looks like I'm wrong. Far more likely to say, uh, you know, as, as we know in psychology, the confirmation bias is what guides us all. That's our inclination to see and remember information that confirms what we believe and ignore or minimize information that disconfirms what we believe. So we see this over and over among the researchers who promulgate the view that estrogen or HRT is harmful to women's health. They trot out the same arguments every so often with yet another analysis of another big study. Valerie Burrell in uh, England, right, Avram? I mean, doing the same thing again. We take massive data, we throw it against the, we say, there's a pony in here somewhere, you know, and they're going to find that pony. And every time one of these big, scary things comes out, study of many thousands of women shows that, you know, HRT increases the risk of pregnancy. And we always look at it up close. We always do. Celine Avram is scrupulous about looking for evidence that we might be wrong in some way, or that one of these big studies really found something important. And every single time we find what's called data mining, where you don't get a significant finding. So you go back into the numbers until you find something that does. Okay, for a woman between the ages of 32 and 41, who um, you know, lives in Montana you know, and has three children under the age of 12, her risk is greater. See, I mean, it's, that's what they do. They look in the data and find you know, anything to find an alarming finding. There is one epidemiologist who was on the Women's Health Initiative's uh, writing committee Mm -hmm. who has come out with several articles since 2015 uh, saying that, in fact, we were wrong, that uh, the data that was published was misleading. Uh, the statement that Carol gave you 
about how at the meeting just before 2002 publication, uh, the authors were told, uh, gee, I'm sorry, you didn't have much input, uh, but the article is coming out. He has come out against it, but he's the only one. Mm -hmm. And the studies, just to show you what data was used to convey uh, following the 2002 initial publication that headlined the increased risk of breast cancer, uh, which wasn't statistically significant and turns out wasn't even valid, there was an article within the next year coming out saying, and it doesn't even improve the quality of life. And the question there is, well, what planet were these people doing their study on? And uh, Gina Collada in the New York Times heralded that not only do hormones increase the risk of breast cancer, again, not valid, it doesn't even do what women thought it did. So you read that article, and what the article says is when you compared the women who were given the hormones with the control women, there was no effect on quality of life. And so instead of reading the summary, you read the text and the text explicitly says that this was a randomized prospective study. Half of the women were going to get hormones and half were going to get placebo pills. And we knew that if symptomatic women joined the study, they'd know within a week if they were getting the hormones. And so we specifically prevented symptomatic women from joining the study. <laughs> I want to I want to pause would, you to make sure my audience hears this because this what you're saying is really important. That study did not include women who were going who a they were much older. They they were mostly well, on, on average they were right. 63. Yes. And they were not experiencing symptoms so they would not have a quality of life improvement because they were not included if they were including if they had symptoms. That's exactly what you're saying, correct? And and so the summary says essentially that these women who had no symptoms had no improvement in the <laughs> symptoms they didn't have if they were randomized to get hormones. And yet the headline in the New York Times was misleading. Yeah. I'm so dismayed. <laughs> I know. It, it's pretty startling, isn't it? But see, that's, that's the kind of rummaging around that I <laughs> was saying that they would that they would do. Let's exclude the women with symptoms. <laughs> and by the way, 13% of the women did get through and did have symptoms, 13%. Mm -hmm. And those women did have significant improvement in their quality of life. But the 13% were overwhelmed by the uh, other, by the 87% uh, that had no symptoms. And so it didn't come out in the final numbers. I want to add, add to this that Joanne Manson just last year wrote an article saying that uh, hormone therapy, what are they calling it now, menopausal uh, hormone therapy, is the safest and most effective treatment for women in menopause having severe symptoms. It's a complete reversal from what they said years ago. Okay. And she's one of the senior investigators. Safest yeah. and most effective treatment. And does she say anywhere, sorry, everyone, that we misled you all those years ago? No. But they are, see, they continue their reassessments. And every year there is another paper they publish that undoes their earlier scare stories. Every year. 
today, as a matter of fact, there should be a new uh, reprinting of our book, Estrogen Matters, with a new afterword. It's a very brief afterword called Afterward 2021. If anybody gets the book with 2021, you want to see that. But it's a very brief summary of where the Women's Health Initiative uh, is today. Basically, having walked back all of their scary stories. Okay, no, it doesn't shorten life. Actually, it extends life. Uh, actually, it's the best thing for menopausal symptoms. Actually, it's the best thing to prevent osteoporosis. Actually, it does reduce the risk of heart disease. But it does still raise the risk of breast cancer. They're not giving that one up, that small finding. And we, but we, we've added the one about the control group <laughs> having a lower risk because so many of those women had been on estrogen before they entered the study. Why so are they giving up the breast cancer? cancer? Oh, that, because that's their main claim to fame. They're not right. going to give up the breast cancer. They're just not going to give up breast cancer. It increases the risk. It's, they, they can never say everything we said was wrong. The main central thing that it increases the risk of breast cancer is their uh, reason for existence. Even though that was not the prime reason for the study. The yeah. prime reason for the study, they state, was to confirm that estrogen improves quality of life and length of life. Uh, and the breast cancer was a secondary uh, concern. It's become the primary concern. Uh, and I'm not so sure they won't eventually retract that as well because the, there's a 2018 report by uh, Howard Hodes from University of Southern California and Phil Sorrell from Yale uh, stating very explicitly what we told you about the control group uh, having women in it with an improved prognosis. Those same data, the graphs they use is in a publication of the Women's Health Initiative that was published in 2007, but they didn't explain it the same way. This is observational blindness. You know, the evidence is sitting right there in front of you and you don't want to see it. You don't want to see it. They did not. Um, okay. Can we, can we tell them Rowan's great line? Uh, from? <laughs> uh, well, if it comes up. If it comes up. Right. We well, have to say it now. I guess I do. Well, um, when one of the leading uh, and principal investigators went to speak to Avram's continuing education program at the hospital where he was um, uh, in practice, um, <laughs> Avram after years had, had finally trained the physicians at his hospital on how to think scientifically and how to think critically and what statistical significance even means. Therefore, his extremely well-educated audience upon listening to this investigator from the Women's Health Initiative said, wait a second, excuse us, we understood that the finding about breast cancer wasn't statistically significant, so what are you doing here? And he said, in effect, after a lot of wishy-washy wallowing around, he said, in effect, here's the in effect part, and then I'll give you the direct quote part because it's tattooed on my leg. <laughs> 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 he said, you know, when you've done a study that's cost this much, that's this huge, you are never going to be able to do another study that's as big as this one ever again. And you know the truth, even if the numbers don't support you. Quote, we ask the statistical police to leave the room, unquote. 
we ask the statistical police to leave the room. Excuse me, the statistical police are what makes your study scientifically valid and worthwhile or not. You don't ask them to leave the room. You bring in more of the police in this case. So I think that was a very revealing remark. Yeah. We knew what we wanted to find. We know what the hazards are. If they didn't turn up in the study, then we did something wrong because the finding must be right. You know, right. many, many, years, yeah. many years ago, the first book I wrote was on the social psychology of anger, when everybody believed it was healthy and beneficial to ventilate anger, what a good thing. And I remember a study that had in its abstract, suppressing anger gives you ulcers. This was before we knew what causes ulcers. Suppressing anger causes ulcers. Really, I said, really it does. So I go, I read the article and there in the article itself was a failure to find a, a significant relationship between suppressing anger and having an ulcer. The researchers were just convinced it had to be there and that's what they reported. So it's not necessarily malevolent, their motives. It could just be conviction. Oh, humans. Oh, oh <laughs> we're so we're so complicated. Um, let's let's now that we've pushed that elephant right off the balcony. Let's let's talk <laughs> about um, about what what we know HRT MHT or whatever you want to call it can help with. And I also want to talk about this notion of windows of protection because this has me still even after reading your book and listening to podcasts, I'm still a little unsure on this 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 idea of a window of protection and. What if you started after this window? Um, what do we know conclusively that hormone therapy can help with? Well, let's talk first about symptoms. Okay. Uh, we used to think that menopausal symptoms are relatively mild. They last about two years, we used to think. And uh, women suck it up and get over it. And it turns out that about 80% of women have significant menopausal symptoms, which aren't just hot flashes and night sweats, but they include uh, a depression, uh, they can include numbness and tingling, uh, they can include palpitations, uh, vaginal dryness, loss of libido, painful sexual intercourse. They don't just last two years, they last on average seven and a half years. And for women of color, they last longer than that. Uh, and the best treatment for this now acknowledged the world over is estrogen. Uh, nothing else comes close. Uh, so symptoms, there's no argument about. Uh, we mentioned heart disease uh, for, for every breast cancer death, uh, seven deaths occur secondary to heart disease. The incidence of heart disease mortality is seven times uh, greater than the incidence of mortality from breast cancer. And so when I say that, women will say, well, sure, but old women die of heart disease and young women die of breast cancer and I'd rather die when I'm old. Well, for every decade of a woman's life, for every decade from age 40 on, the risk of heart disease is greater than the risk of breast cancer the risk of death from heart disease is greater than the risk of death from breast cancer. And that difference increases with every successive decade. Carol mentioned osteoporotic hip fracture. Uh, the number of women who die within one year of having a hip fracture 
is about the same as the number of women who die from breast cancer each year. And osteoporotic hip fracture, it, it's about 42,000 women in the United States per year. Uh, and estrogen will decrease the risk of osteoporotic hip fracture by 50%. And there is no white, no white ribbon campaign, you know, to make there women should. aware of that risk for them. Sorry to interrupt you, Alvin. No, no. But okay. calcium, calcium and vitamin D, uh, which can help strengthen bones in a premenopausal woman, has no effect on a postmenopausal woman who is not taking hormones. And the risk of osteoporotic hip fracture is not that the bone becomes less dense, it's that the bone becomes less elastic. Elasticity of the bone is what allows you to stretch and not break. And estrogen improves your ability or maintains your ability to do that with your bones. And it's the best treatment to help prevent long-term fracture. And this leads to another one of your unasked questions, which is if that really works, how long may I take hormones? And the answer is the same as how long may I take thyroid hormone? If you are deficient in thyroid hormone and your doctor puts it, you on that hormone, chances are you'll take it for the rest of your life. And that is true of estrogen as well. That if you're taking it, and you're taking it, for example, to help prevent bone fracture, and you stop taking it, the benefit is rapidly dissipated. So within several years, your bones are as brittle as they might have been had you never taken hormones. There's a, a movie starring Ronald Coleman that was put out before I was born where Ronald Coleman, who was a leading actor, romantic lead, uh, went to a place called Shangri-La in the Himalayas and fell in love with a 30-year-old woman who was really 300 years old. And he tried to get her to come back to the United States with him. And she said, I can't leave. I'm really 300 years old. But he convinced her. And as soon as she walked out of Shangri-La, she turned to a pile of dust because she aged rapidly. Well, that happens when you don't turn to dust, but that happens when a woman will stop estrogen. And so the recommendation that you should take estrogen for just five years has to be tempered by the fact that the major benefits of estrogen will diminish and diminish rapidly when you stop. That doesn't mean you should take it blindly, but taking it for the rest of your life is not unreasonable and should be discussed with pros and cons weighted with your physician. What are those cons? I, like I'm dying to know, like if I start taking, even if I'm not at risk for osteoporosis, if it doesn't, you know, if a strong bones doesn't run in my family, if I start taking es like estrogen hormone therapy, yeah. menopausal hormone therapy, um, Every, there's this idea of this 10 year window or until you're 60 or all of that. Like, and, and at, to your point, like I've had people ask me, like, isn't that just prolonging some inevitability or, you know, why do I need to stop taking it? And what are those cons? Why would I need to stop taking it? 
the, the reason that's usually given is in the psychology of medicine, the first rule of medicine is called primam non nocere, which means first do no harm. And I certainly agree with that. But sometimes doing nothing is more harmful than doing something. And that has to be consistently and constantly evaluated. And the 10 year uh, limit is an arbitrary limit that's not based on any hard data. No, the interesting thing about it is that it's a kind of bizarre compromise. It's like, okay, we actually think estrogen is really dangerous for you and harmful. But on the other hand, we know that it isn't because so many women really benefit from it and they want it, especially for menopausal symptoms. So how do we compromise here? Okay, let's give you the smallest dose for the shortest time. That's you know what many doctors say. If you must take it, right. okay, smallest dose, shortest time. Now, if you think about it, is this sort of like saying, hmm, well, um, you know, smoking uh, really is strongly related to uh, lung cancer, but if you must smoke, just smoke one pack a day for only three. I mean, you know, it, right. it's if you really think and have evidence that something is dangerous, you don't prescribe it at all, unless it's, um, you know, I, don't, I can't imagine the conditions under which you would. It, the point being, it, it's a compromise between what we've been told is a risk, but what we in fact know is not. And the North American, Medical, uh, North American Menopause Society actually issued a statement saying there is no empirical evidence at all for that mantra smallest dose for shortest yeah. time, no evidence at all. So, uh, you know, Avram has former patients in their late seventies and eighties, you know, who write to them and they say, Avram, guess what? This foolish doctor here in Minnesota, you know, won't let me renew my, my hormones it, um, because it, it just seems so, so unlikely to so many physicians. Why would a woman in her seventies care about thinking sharply, you know, right? Why would she care about having a good sex life? You know, there's so much bias, not just about women in menopause, but older women too, you know, so many biases that we don't mm -hmm. stop and think critically about. So what we spoke about hip fracture, we spoke about heart disease, but let's just summarize that, which is in 1991, there was an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine by Lee Goldman and Anna Tostason saying postmenopausal estrogen, time for action, not debate. That was 30 years ago. And what they said is the data are so strong that estrogen helps reduce the risk of heart disease and death from heart disease, that it's time to endorse it now. And here we are 30 years later, and the data still support that, including the Women's Health Initiative data. But that raises the issue of the window that you spoke about. We often get questions from women saying, okay, I missed the chance to start it around menopause. I'm now 75, can I start it now? And as I mentioned, the, the median or average age of women in the Women's Health Initiative was 63, not 51, which is the time around which most women enter menopause. And there was, initially, not consistently, but initially, an increased risk of cardiac events, mm -hmm. women who had heart attacks. 
And so the question is, well, is it safe to start hormones after, and the window is described as 10 years from your last period. And the problem is as we age, we all develop some level of atherosclerosis. Our blood vessels narrow. And estrogen is like glue that can cause platelets, small corks that circulate in the blood to clump. If you have circulating clumped platelets and these clumped platelets enter an already narrowed blood vessel, it can cause a block and induce a heart attack or a stroke. Because estrogen, when started relatively early within that 10-year framework, prevents the blood vessels from narrowing, preserves the blood vessel's ability to expand when necessary, that risk is not a real risk. But if you start it late, that's a concern. It's not an absolute contraindication, but it's a concern and it can't be ignored. Given that estrogen starting around the time of menopause will reduce the risk of cardiac death by 50% and seven times as many women die of heart disease as die of breast cancer, that should be a very strong push for women to take hormones. And by the way, taking statins is not as effective as taking estrogen in preventing heart disease and heart disease death. And that brings us to Alzheimer's. For every woman who develops breast cancer, two women will develop Alzheimer's disease. The cure rate for breast cancer is 90% if diagnosed at an appropriate time today. The cure rate for Alzheimer's disease is zero. The treatment that would be effective for Alzheimer's disease is as close to zero as you can get. There is a new drug that was just approved by the FDA amidst a great furor that can reduce the decline from Alzheimer's disease by four months, and that will cost $56,000 a year per person. Estrogen will decrease the risk of Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline by up to 50%. In one study, 65%. Although none of those studies are prospective randomized trials, the data are reasonably consistent that estrogen reduces the risk of Alzheimer's disease. I want to add to that Barbara Sherwin, who has studied uh, estrogen and cognitive function, um, says, you know, one of the things she always would hear from women is um, it's just, you know, not natural to be taking hormones uh, late in life. And she says, what's not natural is living 30 years past menopause. She said, me, I want a healthy cognitive life as long as I can maintain one. And uh, that's what we need to consider, uh, which I think is important. I would add one other thing here. One of the things that shocked me in, or surprised me in working with Avram on this book is um, I assumed that estrogen declined in menopause the way testosterone declines in men. 
slowly, gradually, just a little bit here and there over time. No, it's a plummet. It's a complete plummet. Estrogen drops to about 1% of what it was mm-hmm. pre-menopause, unlike testosterone, which declines more modestly and rises and falls and so forth. So it's really closer to being deprived of thyroid hormones than of just a kind of natural. Uh, I say that all the time, all the time. I say that all the time. Like whenever people make that comparison, well, men, you know, they have a hormone. I'm like, if men's testosterone went off a cliff over a period of three years, you better believe we'd all be like shooting for the moon to make that better. Right. Like I say, it makes me insane. The comparison is not there. The, the one, the one question I do have that, that I, I want to cover with the cognition is, is that window at all existent in the cognitive piece? I only ask that because I talked to a neuroscientist last week who was not as sure, you know, there's a lot of really interesting research. You probably saw Lisa Moscone's work on the brain, you know, how it like literally changes during perimenopause and then seems to sort of rebound and change back. But the, the, there's a little bit of thought in that arm of science that just like giving girls the pill early when the, when the brain is uh, weaning onto a lot of estrogen, uh, is not necessarily beneficial for the brain. There's, there's, a, there's a question if, you know, if I'm 60 and I'm through and, I'm, and I've already sort of gone, I'm through the transition and my brain is weaned off of it, are those receptors there and is it good to put them back, you know, bat that back into the system when the brain has effectively weaned off of it. And I don't know if this is outside of the scope of what, you know, you've looked into, but it's an interest, it's an interesting question for that piece, I think. It's a very interesting question. And the data are still early enough that it's hard to reach any kind of conclusion when you're talking to a very large audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, every woman should be able to discuss with her physician whether or not she's a candidate for this. As I mentioned at the beginning, this isn't something we're distributing at a discount and everyone should take it. Uh, Every woman should discuss it. And the reason we wrote the book is so that women walk in prepared to ask the kinds of questions that you are asking, Selena, and not overwhelmed by a physician who is not as well informed as he or she should be, and therefore dismisses the question because of the concern about breast cancer, which seems to us to be a a largely false flag. We'll get back to the show in just a moment. But first, I want to share more exciting news, in case you didn't hear, about our Menopause Summit coming up this September. Along with our virtual summit presentations, there is going to be a live and in-person component in Boulder, Colorado. The live summit will run from September 23rd through the 26th. We'll have educational and practical knowledge sessions on all the topics you'd expect, performance, nutrition, symptom management, mindset, hormones, and more, as well as a lot of fun outdoor activities like hikes, bike rides, swimming, trail runs, yoga sessions, and more. You'll also have the opportunity to meet up with experts with bodywork, bike fit, and of course, we'll have a few happy hours and meet and greets. And right now, for listening, you can get $50 off registration just by tuning into this podcast. 
That's right. Listeners of the show get 50 bucks off the live event. Just go to feistymenopause.com, click on the Menopause Summit tab in the upper right-hand corner, and use the coupon code HITPLAY, all caps. Again, $50 off the live event with the code HITPLAY, one, that's one word, all caps. If you can't join us live, totally get it. You can still come and buy tickets for the virtual summit and you'll get everything. In fact, everybody gets anything. Whether you come to join us in Boulder or you tune in to the virtual, everybody will have access to all the sessions that will be recorded and you'll be able to view that content until the end of the year on December 31st. So go to feistymenopause.com, read all about our sessions and speakers, learn more, come join us live, come join us virtually, whatever way you can. But if you're listening now and you want to come and spend some time with us in Boulder, live and in person, now is your time to get $50 off the registration. Hit play, all caps. I hope to see you there. Let's get back to the show. So, so I get this question all the time, and this, this, this conversation is making me think it even more. And I think to myself, who I have not taken any hormone therapy myself, um, you know, many people are like, okay, this sounds really good. And if my symptoms are not so disruptive, should I still consider this? Because this sounds like it could really make my life even better, even though I didn't think it was that bad, right? Like I, talking to you, I'm like, maybe I missed something. Like maybe, I, like maybe I should be investigating something. I mean, what do you say to someone like, like that? There's no easy answer. Okay. This has to be discussed with physicians uh, because the first year, if you are starting more than 10 years after your last period, the first year may be associated with an increased risk of a stroke or a heart attack. That's a concern. Mm-hmm. And we don't have any absolute test to be able to say, no, you're still fine, you can take it. And so we don't have a way of prescribing this for everybody. The truth is there are still many things we don't know. And my doctor, if I, if I were to find a doctor who's going to have this conversation with me, I'm hearing that one of the, the big things that they're going to look at is that cardiovascular piece, like what yeah. my existing cardiovascular health is, correct? Yes. And the question is, are there tests you can do? Well, there are some tests you can do. You can do a coronary angiogram where you get an injection of a dye that looks at your very small coronary vessels. Do we recommend that? No, that I, I just don't know enough to be able to say that that's a worthwhile thing to do. You can get a simple ultrasound which is a 15 minute test looking at your large coronary arteries and looking at the large blood vessels, arteries that go to your brain and see if they've been compromised. But the real problem is with the very small vessels that an ultrasound simply won't visualize. Okay. And women with specific risks, you know, when I talk to my membership and some of the women in the audience about this, you know, lots of things come up. People say, you know, I have a, a factor that makes me at risk for blood clots. I had endometriosis. I had all these things. Um, That those two are specific discussions to have with their caretaker, correct? Let's talk about both of them. First, the endometriosis, 
Endometriosis uh, can be very mild or very severe. Uh, progesterone may help prevent that from becoming worse if a woman is put on estrogen. Obviously, a hysterectomy will eliminate the endometriosis, assuming it's confined to the uterus, but that has to be discussed with the physician. The biggest side effect, which is acknowledged by everybody, that is increased when a woman takes hormones is the development of venous clots called thrombophlebitis. So let's talk about that. First, it's important to separate a clot in a vein, which is usually swelling of a leg, from a clot in an artery, which can cause a heart attack or a stroke. Those are two different pathologies. The woman who may have a, an abnormal clotting factor that can lead to a clot doesn't increase her risk of an arterial clot. It increases the risk of a venous clot. And while a clot in a vein is a concern, especially since a small number of them can actually break off in the vein, go to the lung, cause a pulmonary embolus, which can be fatal, the increased risk of a clot associated with hormone therapy is about nine women per 10,000 women who take it per year. Well, I, I'm not sure there's any other side effect that gets so much publicity based on such a small risk. It's a real risk but it's very small. And that risk appears to be limited to the estrogen when it's given by mouth. If the estrogen is given by patch, that risk is not increased at all. Which, which brings me to the next like bucket that I did want to talk about, which is forms, you know, the, the, the hormone forms, because, um, if I understand what I've read clearly, as you say, not all forms of estrogen have equal benefits on cognitive function are reducing heart disease. The oral form does appear more beneficial than the patch, but then you have that increase that we just talked about, you know, the not, not huge, but it's there um, increase for blood clots. Why, do, what, what is that? Like, why does the form matter like that? Do we know? Well, the answer that's usually given why a pill will, uh, increase the risk of a venous clot, whereas a patch where the estrogen comes through the skin uh, doesn't increase the risk of a venous clot is because if you take something by mouth, it's absorbed through the wall of your stomach and processed through your liver. And if it's taken through the skin, it goes directly into the bloodstream and doesn't go through the liver. Now, so I could bypass the question by saying, you miss the first pass through the liver. Obviously, if it's absorbed directly into the blood, it takes something like 15 seconds before it goes through the liver because the blood is processed through the liver. Right. Uh, to get into more detail on that would be counterproductive because I can't explain it well and I don't really understand it well enough even if I were able to explain right. it well. But that uh, makes sense. Okay. The, the form of estrogen that I have used most is Premarin. Premarin is the one on which we have 
the greatest amount of data, and that's the only reason I use it. Since we don't have ultimate truth, we are forced to look at all the data we can to come up with the best plan we can formulate. And so Premarin, on which we have 62 years of data of benefit and harm, is far and away the best form for me to use. In addition, Premarin contains a form of estrogen. It contains 10 different estrogens, one of which you are aware of is Equilin. And Equilin has been shown by Roberta Diaz-Brinton when she was at USC, she's now at the University of Arizona, to have the best effect both in a test tube and in laboratory animals of stimulating the growth of healthy brain tissue. In addition, the oral form seems to have some benefit in terms of preserving cardiac health above the patch. But the differences are small. To take it, if a woman is considering hormone replacement therapy, as a physician, I have no objection to either the pill or the patch. Uh, the only concern I have is that the form she take is a form that is FDA regulated so that we know the dose that is reliably in the prescription that she's getting, and we can therefore intelligently predict the benefit and the possible risk from that therapy. But Avrin, I want bioidentical hormones. Well, of course you do. <laughs> and, and the reason you want bioidentical hormones is when the Women's and Health Initiative came out and said estrogen is terrible, it increases the risk of heart disease, of stroke, of breast cancer, and we've addressed all of those. Uh, that created a marketing niche. And the marketing niche allows you to say, well, sure, but the Women's Health Initiative used Premarin. So forget Premarin. I'm going to market something that I'm going to call bioidentical hormones, which sounds really good, and it's not associated with any of those risks. All right, first, that's simply not true, that it's associated with the risks that we just spoke about, big or small, but it's a way of selling a product that you're manufacturing. Bioidentical simply means that the predominant estrogen is estradiol. Estradiol is the form of estrogen that is in highest concentration in the bloodstream of a premenopausal woman. And so you can call it bioidentical, even though that's not exactly right. And by the way, most of it is made from yams that are heavily processed. You can't eat enough yams that would give you adequate hormone replacement without going through intensive processing. But it's a way of selling the hormones. And when Women ask me, well, do you object to bioidentical hormones? The answer is, of course not. That uh, We've already discussed different preparations and why some may have some benefit, but overall, I think estradiol is good replacement. The problem I have is having succeeded in filling this marketing niche with bioidentical hormones, there is a whole new level called compounded bioidentical hormones, which means never mind FDA regulation, 
never mind giving you a dose which I will adjust to symptom control in you. I'm going to take a hair sample or a urine test or a saliva test, and I'm going to calculate for you the exact replacement dose that you need, and I'm going to have my pharmacist down the block prepare for you your unique replacement. I have a great deal of problems with that. The major problem being that it's not FDA regulated. So you're getting a, a drug and you don't know reliably how many milligrams of hormone are in the drug, uh, how uniform a drug it is, how safe it is. And every responsible medical organization that I know of frowns and does not recommend compounded bioidentical hormones. Now, I know of people in that field who have contacted me over the past three years and said, we recognize the problem and we're working to resolve that, to get FDA approval. And I'm all for that. Fine, do it. But until you do it, I have a great many reservations about using that form of hormone replacement therapy. And as your uh, participant social psychologist here, let me add one psychological element here. The appeal to women about the compounded, the idea that I can go to my concierge menopause expert who will pay attention to me, who will listen to my problems and complaints, who will listen to my all of the issues that surround me as a woman in my early 50s, my relationships, my children, my health, why am I gaining weight around my midriff? That, <laughs> the big one for so many women, right? Um, having a doctor pay attention to you is a large part of the appeal of both the concierge practices and compounded, you know, bioidentical. See, they're doing this, this formulation just for me, just for my unique body. No, you don't have a unique body here. I mean, but it's, it's the appeal of that idea. And of course it reflects the fact that menopause is, is, is overlooked and ignored and dismissed and, um, uh, that you know, women in menopause, it still continues to be a kind of stigmatized um, phenomenon for women. As we've discussed, many physicians don't learn the first thing about menopause in medical school. It's, it, you know, it's full of so much uh, negative stuff around it. I'm not going to be a woman anymore and what's happening to me and so forth. So I'm, I understand the appeal of specialized attention to the symptoms of menopause, but... I'm just hoping that women will not be um, as susceptible to that appeal once more physicians learn about menopause and learn about the tried and true history of, of uh, hormone therapy. We are really susceptible right now, I think, to a lot of marketing because menopause is having a moment. You know, it's, it's, it's in the limelight right now. And I, I talk about it a lot on the show that I do think that we are ripe for a lot of snake oil salesmen to come to come at us. You know, it, it is something that, that I'm concerned about as well. That's good. Yeah. Good. Do we know, and and you know, I, I floated this by you before before the show, and I and I'm not sure if there's an answer, but do we know how 
menopause hormone therapy impacts muscle mass and strength with training? Because, you know, there have been some research that comes out about oral contraceptives and they can blunt training gains if they contain progestin that is androgenic, right? Um, so there's a question as to whether or not postmenopausal hormone therapy would have similar performance concerns for this, especially my audience who's super into training and, and athletics. The short answer is uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. Okay. I kind of, that's, that's fair. That's, and I appreciate that. I love the question, but it's important to know areas where you simply don't have enough information to give an answer. And this for me is one of them. Yeah. The that, three, that, the that, three that, most that. underrated words in the English language are, I don't know, and they are the most important. And yeah. I'll never tell you he knows something when he doesn't, but boy, is it, uh, is, you know, we all know what the appeal, is. I could make something up, but I don't know. I, yeah, I, no, I appreciate Selena, it. you'd be interested in knowing that Carol and I, who've been friends for many years, uh, wrote several medical papers together. Uh, and one day she said to me, like you said to Stacy Sims, you know, you really ought to write a book and I can help you write it. <laughs> that's really why this book happened. And as you can see from talking to Carol, <laughs> it was wonderful that I accepted that offer. Well, talking to Carol, how about talking to Avram? <laughs> that's awesome. That's oh, a yeah. really great, that's a great relationship. And, and you do work very well together. You know, it's, it's a wonderful just talking to you, to you guys, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful conversation and you, you complement each other incredibly well because, you know, there's all these things bleed into each other. The, the sociology of all this is very important, you know, as you've brought up many times, uh, especially as I, as the audience knows, I mean, I, my hair is on fire when I talk about some of this stuff, like when I had Eleanor Cleghorn and Unwell Women and the history of hysterics and wandering wombs and all the things that women have been oh my lord misdiagnosed and mistreated as legendary um so i want to before before I, I i i we wrap this up i do so i'm still left wondering as as a woman who minor symptoms 52 you know there are a lot of us out there who are going this sounds really great like is there how do I decide? Like, is it, is it, is it looking at my risk of, you know, bone disease or, or osteoporosis? Is it looking at, you know, my history of the family of cognitive decline and Alzheimer's? Is it just looking at symptoms strictly? Like, is there a, is there an app for that? <laughs> Can I plug this in somewhere and decide if I should pursue this? Like, how, how, how do you make that? How do you know? It's not an easy answer. Okay. Uh, the, uh, to summarize some of the points we made, Nananda Cole uh, in, at the end of the 20th century said women who took hormones would increase their longevity by 3.3 years. Uh, we know that heart disease is a much bigger risk uh, than breast cancer, uh, and this will reduce the risk of mortality from heart disease by 50%. We've spoken about osteoporosis, Cognitive decline is a major concern. I think women, as they get older, are more concerned about that than anything else. 
Uh, and although there are no randomized trials, the overwhelming observational data suggests that it does help prevent cognitive decline. But then you have somebody like Harold who didn't take hormones and is as sharp as a tack. Uh, well, a, a dull tack. <laughs> this tack is getting a little tack. There, there was a report from uh, Howard Hodes and Phil Sorrell. I mentioned these two investigators before that came out uh, that uh, said that as of 2012, they estimated that between something like 30 and 96,000 women have died unnecessarily since 2002 because of the Women's Health Initiative, based on the mortality tables that they went over. Now, in fact, when you go over that article, which makes a very strong point, their data aren't quite statistically significant. So it's not fair to present that as if I know that's truth, uh, but it, it, it conditions my thinking. And I think they have continued to follow those data and they may come up with a follow-up uh, that will be even more convincing. Uh, the the, the answer is easier for a woman who is really having an array of uh, symptoms severely affecting quality of life. Right. And I, I wanna underscore that the symptoms of menopause and in perimenopause too, are so disparate that most women don't connect them to a hormone uh, diminishment at all. You know, you go to a rheumatologist for joint pain and you go to a cardiologist for palpitations and you go to a, a therapist for, for depression. Um, a family therapist we know said, you know, so many of the couples that she sees in therapy would be so much better served if the woman in menopause were taking hormones. And um, so, you know, because there's so many disparate symptoms that it's very hard to put it together, but with a correct diagnosis of number one, what, what has changed for you? What's your life like now? What, what um, are you feeling physically or emotionally? What has changed with the onset of menopause? That's one huge way to begin to answer that question is will I be best served by having by beginning hormone therapy. Um, you know, for someone like me, my mother had no symptoms at all. She kind of, she had late menopause, sailed through her fifties with no symptoms. It was the same for me. And so I thought, well, you know, why would I start? You know, why would I start if I have no symptoms? Now I will say that my answer would be quite different. But um, that part, that's the hard question for a woman with no symptoms. For a woman with symptoms, and especially the more severe ones, um, Hodas and Sorrell have pointed out that uh, hot flashes, which you know, women are like, oh, you know, okay, I'm drenched in sweat, no big deal. Okay, I haven't slept for two years, who cares? Well, who cares is those are severe symptoms and they affect women's health. Not, it's not just a matter of sleeplessness. Sleeplessness is a serious problem that causes, has many health consequences down the line. So the tendency to dis, you know, be disparaging, oh, hot flashes, suck it up, honey, no big deal. It is a big deal, especially when it's prolonged for years. Sleeplessness is a big deal. So to the extent that a woman is suffering from those kinds of symptoms. And, you know, we, I, I love this language of suffering. A woman is always suffering something or other, but for many women in menopause, suffering is the right word. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. 
So, so what is the best options for women? Because there are so many, and I hear them and I hear them and hear them, you know, they go to their doctor and their doctor just doesn't know. Are they still just reciting, honestly, what started this conversation, what they heard about the women's health initiative? Like, like it's still out there. Um, you know, there are a few direct to consumer sites now, like, you know, Gen Ev, Electra Health, where you can, you can plug into a, a doctor that is, you know, uh, Cert, I don't know if certified is the right word, but the North American Menopause Society definitely has a list of doctors, you know, that they have gone through some training. Um, is that is that the best place to go to make sure that this that at least your doctor is up to date on menopause? The the reason we wrote the book is so that women should read it. So they don't depend on a single individual. Okay. whether that individual is a doctor or several doctors. The North American Menopause Society, if you go to their website and you type in your zip code, they'll give you a list of OBGYN doctors who in fact have been trained to deal with menopause. You know, less than 25% of OBGYN training programs deal with menopause at all. And that's OBGYN, never mind general practitioners or family internists. That's disgraceful. And if, if Carol and I joke that, what if you were to say to a man, well, you're going to go through this period and yeah, you're going to have hot flashes and night sweats. Uh, you'll have palpitations. Uh, forget sex drive. It'll probably hurt even if you try to have <laughs> sex. But, but you know, it'll only a last a few years. Avram, you've had enough sex by the age of 50. You don't need to have right. sex. What's the matter with you? What are you yeah, Forget it. Get real. <laughs> Get real. No. Well, that, that just wouldn't be acceptable. You know, the way we used to treat breast cancer before we had chemotherapy, and that's a whole other program mm -hmm. uh, to treat breast cancer. But one of the ways we treated breast cancer that recurred is we used to cut out a woman's ovaries, even if she were premenopausal especially if she were premenopausal, to help control the breast cancer. We then went to doing it prophylactically. If a woman had breast cancer, we would take out her ovaries to prevent recurrence. There are seven large studies looking at that. And by the way, it didn't work. Do you know how many studies we've had taking off a man's testicles for prostate cancer, which kills as many men each year as breast cancer kills women? The answer is zero. And we will never, never have such a study. When a woman had recurrence after her ovaries were taken out, we used to take out her pituitary gland. And that's after we did radical mastectomies on these women. It's so unfair. The Women's Health Initiative was set up by Bernadine Healy, who was a cardiologist and who was the first and thus far the only female director of the National Institutes of Health. And she set it up because she said, women are not almost like men or little men. We have to do studies on women, not just studies on men and then extrapolate. And she also in a book that she published in 1995, said, as far as she can tell, this cardiologist, women have this benefit, this benefit in terms of quality of life and longevity, 
while they are still premenopausal. And she doesn't plan to give that up when she becomes menopausal. She is going to start hormones in a blink. And she would turn over in her grave if she saw what the Women's Health Initiative has done with the study that she helped bring into existence. We are, you know, sympathetic to the dilemma of women who, um, for example, who have physicians who won't prescribe, you know, HRT for them or even discuss this with them or who still have that patriarchal attitude of they're there, dear. I know it's best. I've read the Women's Health Initiative. You don't understand it. You're not a scientist. You know, that kind of thing. Um, our, <laughs> it was a, an interesting uh, issue for us because our book is, um, is full of the evidence for our case. We not only present the evidence about the benefits of estrogen, but as I said before, where possible, Avram was at pains to find any evidence that was discrepant and to spend time explaining why any contradictory evidence was not frankly worth taking seriously. And each chapter ends with an assessment of the alternatives to HRT that a woman might wish. You know, are statins the thing to do? What about bisphosphonates for bones and so forth? Um, so we do a comparison for the many women who have heard all the arguments against hormones but think there might be alternatives. But, but more important, we wanted to provide a book, wanted to write a book that was scientifically grounded enough for physicians who want to see the evidence. All of the research is referenced in this book. And a woman doesn't have to read all the studies if she doesn't want to just to get to the <laughs> get mm -hmm. to the highlights. But it is a book that we intended for women to take to their doctors if necessary. I mean, now, of course, how many doctors are going to say, thank you so much for doing <laughs> my homework for me. Oh, good. You brought me a book, you know, piss off, lady. <laughs> but we're hoping that some won't respond that way. My gynecologist keeps a copy of our book on his desk. He will not let a woman leave until she has made a note of it. So that's the hope is that we get to the physicians who can have the evidence to support, um, to support our case. Thank you so much for, you've been very generous with your time and I appreciate your passion and I appreciate your mission. You know, I appreciate what you've, what you've done because um, it, it, it is, it, it reminds me a lot about, of the low fat debacle, right? That just like these public health things that, that happen and take on this monstrous life of their own. And they're so difficult to take down. Once they are out there, they're so difficult to take down. And this is really important. So I appreciate, I appreciate both of you. And thank you for, for continuing to give your time to shows like ours and, you know, getting your message out there. Celine, In our talk, you. just one, we, we didn't mention the name of the Women's Health Initiative epidemiologist who has published extensively uh, challenging the conclusions of the study he participated in. And if anyone wants to look it up, his name is Robert Langer. Okay. And he's excellent. I will include that in the show notes. Well, that's our show. Join me next week for my conversation with Dr. Melissa Sunderman. 
Dr. Sunderman is an athlete and a doctor of lifestyle medicine, and we go into the six pillars of lifestyle medicine and how they can help menopausal women live their best lives. You won't want to miss that one. So until then, as always, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.